Hey everybody, John Heilman here and welcome to part two of the very special two-part Haberman, Heilman, Helen Highwater uh, with New York Times senior reporter and the dominant definitive reporter of the Trump beat in the Trump era, also the author of a book that's destined to be the dominant definitive book uh, about Donald Trump in the Trump era, Confidence Man, The Making of Donald Trump and the Breaking of America. In part one, we talked about some news that Maggie broke while she was promoting the book is still like in her spare time while reporting the book and running from cable studio to cable studio, TV thing to TV thing, radio thing to radio thing, podcast thing to podcast thing. She's out there also just with the, whatever portion of her brain that's not focused on telling people about this incredible book she's written. She's also like reporting like a maniac and breaking stories that matter to the future of the nation about the possibility that Donald Trump actually has more classified documents still hidden away somewhere at Bedminster. Who knows? Uh, the trunk of his car. I don't think he drives. Anyway, that's we had all that in the first section. We also talked about uh, Maggie's whole coverage of Trump before he got into politics, which is like in some ways one of some of the most important things in this book because they're they feel genuinely fresh. It's like how New York, the outer boroughs of the 70s and 80s and Manhattan of the 80s and 90s kind of gave birth to Donald Trump. That is what Really, in a lot of ways, what part one of this podcast was about and about Maggie's assessment on the basis of a lot of reporting kind of coming to some some very astute and acute psychological and characterological insights about who Trump really is uh, related to, to race and, and, and women and transactionality and uh, his very dark kind of view of the human soul and why that's really kind of depressing, but also has served him pretty well. We also talked about some of the things that have upset people about Maggie in the world, including the notion that somehow she's like she saved stuff for the book and didn't put it out when she first learned about it. And if only she would put it out, things would be different. Uh, Maggie talks about all that stuff uh, pretty forthrightly in uh, the first part of the podcast. So, so part one, if you haven't listened to it yet, you got to hit pause right now and go back and check it out. It's not going to make as much sense to listen to part two until you've listened to part one. So please do that. Uh, and then you come back here and then you listen to part two in which you'll hear uh, about all the stuff that happens once Trump gets into politics. Talk about 2016, uh, his presidency, the 2020 campaign, stuff that happened then, the insurrection, the post-presidential dilemmas that Trump faces on the legal front, and some questions about his continuing power in the Republican Party, about all of these election deniers who are uh, nominees in important Senate and gubernatorial elections, and the way in which Trump in particular is hovering over the spirit of Trump, the history of Trump, hovering over the Herschel Walker, uh, Raphael Warnock Senate race in Georgia, where Herschel Walker is facing these accusations about, uh, about having paid for ab abortions, perhaps, of multiple women. Uh, and the kind of question of whether Trump, who basically created Herschel Walker as a political figure, uh, is now maybe providing a playbook for Herschel Walker for how to get out of what seems like a pretty dire jam when it comes to the scandal that's enveloped the Georgia Senate race. So there's a lot to listen to here. Uh, we'll also get to listen to, I should say, I always forget, we don't have many exclusive news breaks on Hell and High Water, but we do hear Maggie's given us a, an exclusive, never-before-released audio clip from one of her book interviews with Trump where he talks about COVID, and he talks about it in a way that makes you think uh, that Trump was a lot more concerned about COVID early on when he was telling everybody that it's just no big deal, don't worry about it, uh, than anybody knew. So we'll play that and talk about it. I think that means that it's the time to let's get to the podcast. Without further ado, here we have for you the second part of our talk with Maggie Haberman on Helen Highwater.
let's start here. Trump is a candidate in 2016. Um, and let's play this interview that he does with George Stephanopoulos about Putin. Stephanopoulos is, this is by, that Trump is the nominee by now, by the time this interview takes place in July of 2016. And Stephanopoulos is like going in on an issue that, you know, that would be central to Trump's presidency, the perception of Trump's presidency and central to Trump's psyche over the, from then all the way up till apparently all the way up till now, uh, his relationship with Putin. Let's play that. Let's talk about Russia. You made a lot of headlines with Russia this week. What exactly is your relationship with Vladimir Putin? I have no relationship with Putin. I have no relationship with Putin. But if you have no relationship with Putin, then why did you say in 2013, I do have a relationship? In 2014, because I spoke... Because he has said nice things about me over the years. I remember years ago, he said something, many years ago, he said something very nice about me. Uh, I said something good about him when Larry King was on. This was a long time ago. And I said, he is a tough cookie or something to that effect. He said something nice about me. This has been going on. We did 60 Minutes together, by the way, not together together, meaning he was probably shot in Moscow. Well, he was in Moscow, you were in New York. York. But that's the thing. No, just so you understand. He said very nice things about me, but I have no relationship with him. I don't. Yet I've you never said for him. three years, 13, 14, and 15, that you did have a relationship have, with him. No, look, what, what do you call a relationship? I mean, he treats me I'm with, with you. great respect. I have no relationship with Putin. I don't think I've ever met him. I never met him. I don't think I've ever you met him. You would know it if you did, wouldn't I think you? so. Yeah, I think so. So I've, I don't think I've ever met him. I mean, if he's in the same room or something, but I don't think so. But I just want to clear this up because you did say on three different occasions you had a relationship with him. Now you say there is none. Well, I don't know what it means by having a relationship. I mean, he was saying very good things about me, but I don't have a relationship with him. I didn't meet him. I haven't spent time with him. Uh, I didn't have dinner with him. I didn't... Uh, go hiking with him. I don't know. I, I wouldn't know him from Adam, except I see his picture and I would know what he looks like. Vice- it's an incredible, it's an incredible interview. Um, so many things in that, in that, that are like some of the things already talked about, which is the, I don't think I've ever met him. I've never met him. I don't think I've never met him. You know, I barely know him. I, well, what's the relationship? You were talking Maggie earlier about the, uh, the, the similarities between Trump and Bill Clinton. You know, I mean, if, if that's not uh, an echo mm. of, uh, it depends on what the meaning of the word is, is, you know, it's, it's a like, good, it's a, that's a very good comparison. Yeah. I mean, it's like, right. well, well, what's a relationship at George? What do you, what do you mean by a relationship? But everyone hiking with him again, the image of Donald Trump hiking with anyone, just make, make sure. <laughs> I never hiking with, well, and I never had a meal with him and, you know, and I, I also was, I continue to be struck by the bit in that interview. And it really is one of the, the most interesting interviews that took place in 2016. Yeah. But I continue to be struck. That, that and Jake Tapper with Trump on David Duke, I thought were two of the most yes. revealing ones. Yep. And, but he, um, he, he uh, on television anyway, and he, he says, you know, uh, I, I, I said a good thing about him. He said a good thing about me. It's like, <laughs> I, I really don't, that's, right. I doubt that Putin was necessarily viewing this the way Trump did, but that is how Trump views all of this. And what you report in Confidence Man, the making of Donald Trump and the breaking of America, is that Trump walks off the set of that interview and goes absolutely fucking bonkers. Um, yes. And, and it's like, and it costs his aides, it costs the people at ABC News, it costs George yes. directly yes. about it. Talk about what about what that, what you have in the book about that and why it matters. So I, I uh, in the book, I write about how he, he walks off set and he goes storming up to uh, John Santucci, who it was uh, working as a, an aide on, on this particular interview um, and, and who was working for the show with Stephanopoulos. And he says that was bullshit. Yeah, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing with my curse words, but it's, you know, you better fucking fix it in the edit. Um, you know, too many. It, he's protesting that there were so many questions about Russia. Uh, and at one point he says something like, you know, 
you ask me once, you don't keep asking me. I wish I had it in front of me, but it was, it's like you ask me if I, if I beat my wife, um, you know, you don't then ask me if I used a baseball bat. And then Stephanopoulos, and he's like, get George in here. And Stephanopoulos comes in and, and he's like, George, you know, Russia. And, and, and Stephanopoulos chuckles and says, I know my team says I should have asked you more about it. Um, <laughs> and Trump goes nuts. Yeah. And, 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 and the thing is, is it's a little, I just want to also just set up the scene for people a little bit. And I, and I write about this, but you know, he's surrounded by Secret Service agents in this tiny right. little space. And so one of the things that Trump does, because he's incredibly one-on-one -on -one direct conflict averse, but he has to roll heavy yeah. when he does it every time. <laughs> and so this time he's rolling heavy. Um, but it's very striking because, as as you observe, this is a topic he doesn't like talking about. Right. And so it it does open up the, the whole subject of the campaign to me because, you know, if you think about what, what are we, what are the things that get set what are the things in the campaign that we see that then become leitmotifs throughout that are connected to his character and connected to the things that we end up talking about, thinking about, reporting on, uh, reacting to for the next X number of years and still to today? Russia is definitely one of them. And and I guess I, I it, it raises one very basic question to begin with, which is I, you said a thing earlier about how like you're interviewing people in Dubuque about how at the Iowa caucuses about how it's going to be over soon. And, and there's at least one piece of video I remember of you being on with George, you know, being asked about Trump as, you know, winning the Republican nomination, like many people who were like laughed at the idea that Trump would ever be the Republican nominee, let alone president of the United States. The Russia thing is one example of a thing that would have been a, a fatal liability for any other candidate. There were many others with Trump. Again, looking back on it now, what's your assessment of why you... And and like many people, I say in the press, uh, I was like this about the general election, a little less so about the nomination. But like we're just like, there's no way this man will ever be president, one way or the other. We won't get the nomination; we won't be president. What have you now, in retrospect, looked back and said? Here's how he was able to overcome those liabilities, and mm -hmm. and and how it gets explained in Confidence Man. Mm -hmm. So a couple of things, I, and I, I want to clarify one thing that that moment on Stephanopoulos where I laughed was really bad and very embarrassing, and I feel really bad about it still. I was I was not laughing at the idea that Trump was going to be the nominee. I just want to make clear this was I think July or June of 2015. It was pretty early. Um, what struck me was um, that that uh, Keith Ellison uh, uh, of Minnesota was talking about you know if we don't want a tr Donald Trump to be the nominee then uh, you know we we better get cracking and it it was really that the idea it it, it seemed like concern trolling and, and he was right and I. Totally tip my hat to him. Um, it's just how early it was, but that was that was a bad moment. Well, um, I would just say, I would just say, he, Maggie, though. I mean, honestly, like it's not like a, I get I get why you want to say it was a mistake, but well, I felt bad. It about was it, very. But it's, but it's, it's, but it's, it's a very. It was an almost universal view at that point, which was like it was, time. but it was very. It was very early. I will I say that by the time by the time we got to December of 2015, I said to my colleagues, I think we have to start accepting the possibility he wins Iowa. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, and, and there was disagreement, but it was pretty clear he was on a trajectory to win New Hampshire. Yeah, right. Uh, and you know, so at, at, by December, the reason, and this is to your question about it, not, um, not change, not, you know, sort of how, how he did this, now he overcame things. One of the strains in the Republican party that he really tapped into that is a unifying thread across segments of the GOP was anti-Muslim sentiment. Right. And 
he really played that to the hilt. You know, he obviously came down the escalator and talked about Mexicans as quote unquote rapists, um, but they're bringing crime and all this other stuff that he said. But he talked a lot about Islamic fundamentalism and called for literally an, a ban on an entire religion uh, toward the end of the, the year in 2015. And, uh, and this was in response to to terrorism. And his numbers kept going up. And it, in fact, was what prompted, and I write about this, one of his advisors to say to me that they had never seen a case where a candidate, their word was fucks up, and their numbers go up. And so he was hitting on something. Uh, and it was a continuation of, well, frankly, what had started in 2011 when he was at CPAC and then he was spreading the lie about Obama, which was that there is this strain in the GOP that wanted someone who would, quote unquote, fight. And he was fighting. Right. And so I think that was a, a, a big piece of it. Um, I think the anti-Muslim sentiment and nativism is a big piece of it. Right. And then I think that, you know, I, I think that there was a there was a, you know, in, in that close an election, there's a variety of factors. But by the time we got to the. General election, John, I, I did think he had a shot. I said it yeah. to an editor in May, and I said it again in the fall. What prompted me to say it in the fall, and this was prior to the Access Hollywood tape, was his her number, Hillary Clinton's numbers with white working class voters in surveys of battlegrounds like Ohio were not were nowhere near where Obama's had been, and that was prompting real concern to pollsters I was talking to. The other issue was. The weekend of the Access Hollywood tape, and I wrote a story about this that weekend. You know, you have Paul Ryan take the stage and criticize Trump yeah. the day after the t the, the tape is uh, reported by the Washington Post, and he gets booed. Yes. So I mean, yes. you know, yes. so so this goes back to what we talked about about you know just sort of this this image that Trump built over a very long period of time. Voters felt uniquely bonded to him in ways I think we just didn't understand. Yes, and so yes, I totally agree, and I, and I will say that you know. In, in retrospect, it's like the fact that he won the general election is actually more explicable than than at a less historical, in a weird way, less historical moment in some ways than that he was able to win the Republican nomination. I, I think there's real truth to that, given 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 what it took to for for a thrice married, uh, you know, former Democrat from New former pro choice Democrat yes. from New York to get evangelical voters on his side. Well, a I, and thing. a protectionist. I, I mean, look, we'd seen strains of this in the party for a long That's time. Right. The idea of the Republican Party that had nominated sequentially John That's McCain right. and Mitt Romney right. would suddenly, not only that That's the guy right. would be competitive, but that a xenophobic, protectionist, yes. uh, immigration restrictionist, anti-free trade, the guy who didn't like NATO, uh, isolationist leaning uh, and thrice yep. married, and a contributor to Bill Clinton and, and, and yep. Hillary Clinton, and yep. fav had favored national health care, yep. and had favored legalizing drugs, and I would That's guess right. has probably paid for a fair number of abortions, which we'll get to later on, on Herschel Walker, I would guess, knowing Donald Trump's proclivities in the 70s and 80s, that guy not only won the nomination, right. but right. just right. wiped out the field. That's right. Oof. That's right. That's just still that's like right. a, that's a historical thing that like, you know, will be studied forever about how a party can implode when, you know, it's a lot. It was not he's, you know, obviously is the straw that broke the camel's back. But man, it's a thing where a tipping point moment where all of a sudden, wow, the Republican Party just got transformed seemingly overnight by one guy, even though that's not quite true. 
No, it was over. And what I try to write about is actually it was over. There was an evolution over a long period of time, um, which is how we got to this moment, including two things. All politics now is, and and this is across the spectrum, both parties, is defined by who you hate and who hates you back. Mm. He's just uniquely positioned to exploit that. And so I think that's a big piece of it. And the other thing that he came to recognize that year, but I would say really in 2017 when he was first president, is how much politics has been redefined, particularly within the GOP, has been redefined by culture. Yeah, It's less about the urban-exurban divide than it is about a cultural divide. Right. Um, and, and and I think he really gets that. So you just cited the Access Hollywood uh, tape. And and uh, and I, I just, that's obviously, I, in some ways it's crazy even to play it because of course everyone knows what it sounds like. But I just, I want to take you back to that moment and and what we all thought when it came out. And then there's a bunch of implications going forward that I want to just kind of play with just because Trump and women, as you pointed out, the thing about Trump and gender, Trump and women has been a through line for his whole life. And 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 it plays out in fascinating ways going forward, including all the way to today in, in like this Herschel Walker thing that I think are, are resonant. But let's play just reminder of what, what it sounded like in October of 2016 uh, when the Access Hollywood tape came out. This was from 2005, Billy Bush and Donald Trump. Better not be the publicist. No, it's, it's her. It's her. Yeah, that's her with the gold. I better use some Tic Tacs just in case I start kissing her. You know, I'm automatically attracted to beautiful. I just start kissing them. It's like a magnet. You just kiss. I don't even wait. And when you're a star, they let you do it. You can do anything. Whatever you want. Grab them by the pussy. I can do anything. It's the cackling of Billy Bush on that tape that still makes me, like, makes me kind of queasy. It comes out right, Maggie. You thought, what? It's over for Trump? I didn't know what I thought. I uh, the The language was so striking um he's describing assault um and so remember that comes out the same night that wikileaks starts dumping clinton email related emails so um from the john podesta account so it's all one big blur um uh i i think that i thought it was very problematic for him as a candidate (laughs) yeah i mean i you know the the his party was furious um you know, it seemed as if in politics there were still certain lines that if you crossed them, they would be a problem. It's just that he had crossed them over and over and in public and on the Howard Stern show um, for so long that it just didn't matter the way it, it once did. Um, and and what I, I will say that the one day, and I write about this, the, the one day that um, on that campaign, because I've been asked, you know, do you, were you ever you know, concerned or was, was anything alarming? And the one day that was jarring was the day after that tape came out and I was, I was staking out, I mean, I was sitting in the lobby of Trump Tower all day long and the, the, you know, monitoring who's coming in and coming out. Very few people were coming in because they were coming in through the side entrance. But at one point late in the day, a bunch of his supporters had gathered outside. It was dark out by then. And they had gathered outside uh, in front of Trump Tower on Fifth Avenue and he comes downstairs and he's flanked by Kellyanne Conway and Don Jr. And and he goes out and he goes in the middle of this crowd and they're they're literally pawing his arms and he he pumps his fist in the air and then he kind of claps almost like for himself as he comes back into Trump Tower. And there was a there was there was a there was a something um 
dark about all of it. Um, and so, uh, meaning, meaning what you mean? So you were like, you felt the, the, you the, 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 no, cause nothing was happening to any of us. It was just right. that the energy, the energy felt very dark. Um, it was like, it, it felt like anything could happen. And then the next night is when they bring, you know, Bill Clinton's accusers to the debate. Right. And so what's happening there behind the scenes, I believe it's been reported now, but I, I know for to be true, is he's up in Trump Tower having the conversation about what to do, how to recover yep. from this thing. And you've got Reince Priebus saying, you've got to get out. You're going to lose. Yep. Be a, you're a catastrophe. You're going to lose. You'll, you'll, you'll lose by some epic proportion. Yes. Yeah. You'll, you'll be wipe, it's going to be a wipeout, right? Reince yep. Priebus is his future chief of staff, <laughs> then, right. the, then the chairman of the party, who's saying, you've got to yep. get out. And yep. his reaction is defiance, not just defiant, like I'm not getting out, but like he goes downstairs and does the thing you just described on the street and, Mm -hmm. and he's not going anywhere. And Bannon gets the Clinton, the women, Bill Clinton's accusers show up at the debate. And then a little, a few days later, as the accusations are now coming forward, it's not just the access Hollywood, all of these women are coming out, accusing him of sexual assault over and over again. He then, uh, Jessica Leeds is one of them. It's six days later after that debate. Mm -hmm. And I want to play this. What Donald Trump says when Jessica Leeds, one of the accusers, comes out, what does he do? He doesn't just deny it. He Mm. makes fun of how she looks. Let's listen to that. Hopefully our great movement, and there's never been anything like this in the United States, and the only way they figure they can slow it down is to come up with people that are willing to say, oh, I was with Donald Trump in 1980. I was sitting with him on an airplane. And he went after me on the plane. Yeah, I'm going to go after Believe me, she would not be my first choice, that I can tell you. You don't know. That would not be my first choice. So his reaction to being accused by multiple women, credibly, of sexual assault, including this woman, is to say, she's a dog, basically. I would never go after her. She's not good looking enough for me. And yet, it doesn't have any effect on, on it doesn't stop him from winning the presidency. And, and I, the reason I raise it is that because you're, you're attuned to this, right? We, soon, we then have, when he gets nominated, when he becomes president, he, like, in the wake of the inauguration, we have the, the women's march and the, and, the, and, the, and the pink pussy hats. And we have all of the stuff that now plays out to today where we're talking about is the repeal of Dobbs, uh, the repeal of Roe v. Wade and Dobbs. Is that going to change the outcome of the midterms? It does ultimately have this impact, the Me Too movement. A lot of stuff happens over the last five or six years related to gender and politics. And I just want you to think, I talk about that, how Trump's, you know, it didn't matter. The Access Hollywood tape didn't matter. The way he treated Jessica Leeds didn't matter. In the end, though, there was, it took a little longer, but there was a big cultural reaction to Trump as president that related to gender. And I, I want to like, I want to hear what you have to say about it, because I think it is something that, again, when history looks back on this, they'll, they will talk about the fact that Trump set off something uh, powerful in terms of how he talked about and treated women. So there's, I, w- I would put them in two separate categories. I think, I think one you saw an impact of in terms of how he talked about women, um, and and some some aspects of policy and public health policy on women's health in 2018 in the midterms. Right. I mean that was a very clear rebuking of Trump by suburban women, yeah. uh, and, and that was not a surprise. I think that now what you're seeing is different because it's it's that he is the man who, you know, I, I, he's not the only man responsible for this. Mitch McConnell is too, um, and you know, and 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 some other people. But he appointed the justices who went through with the Dobbs decision, which ended Roe v. Wade, and so now there's a policy piece 
that people can point to. Uh, it's not just a theoretical anymore. And and what I find interesting is so much of what you were just going over about him talking about women, you know, people who supported him, including women, would say, it's just words. It's just words. It doesn't mean anything. Right. And when you're a president, it's not just words, right? And yeah. so what we've seen happen with the Dobbs decision is an actual consequence uh, and a direct correlation of someone's presidency. And so I think that the more that history looks at, you know, not just treating everything he does as the same and equal, but how what he actually did impacted the country and impacted the world, I think is going to matter a lot. In terms of in terms of gender, you know, I, what I was thinking about when you were asking the question, actually, and you were talking about Jessica Leeds was, and then he's not my, you know, whatever he said it was, it was like, you know, she's not my type. It, there was something like that. Um, I asked him a question in a series of fact checks that are in the in the book. Yep. His, his handwritten answers to me are in the book. And one question was that he was said, according to people who, were, who who knew him pretty well, that he would he would take, you know, um, salacious these he had salacious photos of women he claimed to have been involved with yeah. and that he would show them to people. Yeah. And his response was something like, not my style. Right. And it's just the immediate whatever you say isn't real, it doesn't matter. Um, well, and so I, you know, well, yeah, just sorry. pause that for a second. Here's an interesting question for you. What he said in the in the Jessica Leeds sound is he says, uh, "Believe me, she would not be my first choice." That right. I tell you. Yes. She would not be my first choice. Now, uh, you know, a close parser of quotes will say that that's not really a denial. Um, not would be. I mean, my first choice is a way to demean her looks without actually saying without whatever, without addressing without it. Yes. Addressing not my style is the same, same thing. thing. Not my style. He didn't say he didn't do it. Same. Not my style. Right. Same right. thing. It's he's expert at. At, to, to the point we made earlier about how he knows where lines are, he is really effective at at seeming to dismiss something yes. without actually doing it. And, and speaking in vernacular that strikes people as a denial. Well, he said he didn't do that. You're like, no, Correct. he didn't. No, he didn't say that. He didn't say that. Correct. All he said was not my style. He didn't say I did not do Correct. that. Correct. Um, it's Correct. very. And one of the one and well, right. one of the things that I try to establish in the book, John, is is he's much more calculating than people realize. He's not strategic. Right. But he is calculating, yes. and and there's a there's a difference. So let me ask you just to, to button this topic, right? And this gets to a thing about how the press covered Trump that I, I'm certain you have strong feelings about. Like as we sit here today, having written this book, having known Trump, having covered Trump, all the stuff that you've done, and being a woman, I'll note, uh, mother of three, um, and uh, a very very uh, to, to one who takes that job very seriously, um, is Donald Trump a misogynist? Uh so. The, I, I've and asked this question in different formats about is he this, is he that? He says all kinds of misogynistic things. Yeah. So I don't know what the difference is. Um, you know, he does he did he also have and this is one of the things that's always, you know, complicating with him. He he really did have women in significant positions of power in his company. Uh far less so in the White House, although I know that the public line from his allies is different. Um, but he, he did in, in his business, he relied on women a lot. Um, but two things can be true at once. You can be promoting women for whatever reason, and you can also be, you know, misogynistic in how you, how you speak about them and behave. And, uh, and I think both things were true. There's obviously was this giant debate, um, in the course of his presidency about whether the press was too, 
um, the mainstream press, the news, the, the, not the kind of, not people on cable news, but, um, but people at the New York Times, the establishment, the, the papers of record, were too hesitant to use words like lying. Um, and eventually the Times crossed that Rubicon and was willing to do it. I think, you know, the question of is he a misogynist is another kind of question like that. Can we say, you know, is, is, is what are the bound, what are the appropriate ways of, I used to be one of those people, by the way, who would be like, you can't call him a ra- you can't call someone a racist. You can say he said a racist thing. You can say he said something that was that was racial invective. You can say all those things. He said a racist thing. That comment was racist. That was a racist comment. You could say, but is he a racist? Requires you to know the person's mind in a way that's very difficult to be strictly speaking and rigorous about being accurate. Of course, the right response to that was somebody who says enough racist things over that period of time, you can basically reach a conclusion that person's racist. You, you don't give them, but you don't give them ben- you don't give them benefit of the doubt after a certain right. Yes, I think that's and, I think that's right. and do you feel like you like you personally and the times landed in the now are now in the right place with respect to those kinds of questions calling a candidate a misogynist calling a candidate trump or others a racist a misogynist a liar is is the you think that where we've where again for yourself and for the paper that you understand where that line is and you're comfortable and happy with it I'm not going to talk about myself or the paper. I will talk about the because I don't I'm, I don't run the New York yeah, Times, yeah, yeah. but I will um I, I but I will I will make a statement I think broadly about coverage, which is I think for a very long time, and I write about this that you know it was a challenge for all news outlets to figure out. I'm just I'm just going to deal with the part about him saying things that aren't true. Yeah, yeah. Um, that it was that that they had never dealt with a um, almost none of us had ever dealt with a candidate who, uh, you know. It, said so many things that were not true and lied about things that were big and small, right? I mean, I think that that was just a ch- huge challenge for the the broader national media for a variety of reasons. Um, I think that the scale of what he is saying things that are not true about is now so broad it relates to the election right. that I think everyone has kind of landed on a specific spot. I think his his lies about the election are called lies. Somebody who continues to maintain that they didn't lose an election that they lost and that courts did not come down on his side over and over and over and that the audit that he was pointing to in Arizona, so-called audit that was going to show that Biden didn't win and in fact it just affirmed that Biden won, you know, it, it goes back to the benefit of the doubt question. I guess I I would flip your question a little bit, which is I think that there are there are people who think that you know, it goes to the something you were asking about before of nothing. You know, why didn't X, Y, Z stick to him? Why didn't this take him right. down? Why didn't this? I, it isn't because the coverage wasn't, you know, capturing it correctly. Right. It's that, you know, people are people are, are voters make decisions and they have agency. And so I think as long as we are we are accurately capturing something, I think we're doing our job. And I think that the bulk of the media does that now. All right. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back on Hell and Hot Water with New York Times senior political reporter and author of the new book, Confidence Man, The Making of Donald Trump and the Breaking of America, the one and only Maggie Haberman. And we are back on Hell and High Water with Maggie Haberman, author of the new book, Confidence Man, Making of Donald Trump and the Breaking of America, and the, you know, by common consensus, sometimes people don't like it, but it's just the truth. She's the defining dominant reporter of the Trump era on the Trump beat. 
So I want to play two now, two pieces of sound from your interviews with, not in a row, I'll play one and then we'll play the other, but they're both things from Trump's presidency. And then they're crucial, they're interview, interviews you did with him about crucial moments in his presidency, things that ultimately it will define him, I think. But if one defined him in the election and, and another defined him, will define him for history. The first is is this piece of audio that has not I played play any place else. Maggie, you'll tell me if this COVID clip, I don't think it's been out in the public. Uh, and so we have... A rare exclusive here on Hell and High Water. Uh, this is Maggie uh, interviewing Donald Trump for Confidence Man. When was this interview conducted? You did three interviews with him for the book, right? I did. I'm fairly certain that that was the second interview, uh, April 27th, 2021, at, at uh, Mar-a-Lago. And I'm right that this is not this has not yet been. Has not this been, has not been out. Uh, no, and I and 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 this is. Um, this, this one's kind of interesting, but anyway, play it. And he refers, let me say one thing before we play it. He refers to Stanley here. Who's Stanley? Stan, is who? Stan, Stanley Shira, who was a friend of his. Remember at the very beginning of um, COVID, uh, we found out that he, and he even re- referenced it, that he had a friend who had gotten COVID. Yeah. And was, I think the friend was overweight. Um, it was, it was this, this real estate uh, uh, figure named Stanley Shira, who was also a, a donor to the Republican Party. And he was talking about having had early con- – Stanley Shira left New York City and went to go sit out the pandemic in Deal, New Jersey, mm-hmm. um, and still got sick right. and, and, and then passed away from COVID. I told Stanley that it was very bad. Okay. What- and I said – and to other people, and a lot of people listened. Um, you warned them to get out of Stanley New York. Stanley was a pure New York – you know, he was a mm-hmm. pure New Yorker. You understand. I do. You said you warned other people that they should get out of New York. Um, was it because the numbers were so bad, or was it because there was fears of transmission on the subway? Well, this was early on. Yeah. And, I mean, as time went by, that became an easy decision. Mm-hmm. If they, mm-hmm. you know, not everybody can just do that. Sure. Uh, but I, I said to a lot of people, it, the numbers are so bad. Mm-hmm. You know, the numbers were astronomical. Mm-hmm. Uh, I will allow you to explain why you think that's interesting sound. I know what I do. <laughs> So why I think it's interesting is he, he seemed to be saying that he had given people warnings to get out of New York City yeah. um, when the numbers were really bad and that it was, you know, the, the, the people who he knew personally who tended to be wealthier. Uh, it was only the people who were wealthy who were really able to escape New York City, which was, you know, one of the ground zeros for COVID. Um, now, to, to our earlier point, very hard to pin him down. So it's a little loosey-goosey, um, right. but I thought it was a pretty revealing moment. Well, it's also the case that it it, it, it doubles your sense. I mean, again, it's hard to pin it because we don't, I don't, when did Stanley, you know when Stanley Shearer died? He, he, early in the pandemic in 2020. I mean, it kind of, there, there obviously is the whole history of Trump playing down the pandemic significance at the beginning of yep. it. You know, you know so there's going to be a couple of cases from China. We know yep. all that stuff. That's familiar. Yep. The notion, it's another piece of evidence on the pile that, that some of it was from the, his conversation with Woodward, that there was a much greater awareness on his part that this was a big fucking deal and people were, this was bad and Correct. a greater degree of alarm than he conveyed to the public uh, in, in real time. Um, no question. Do, do, can you, how much do you think in, in, did, what does he think and what do you think of in, in now? I mean, it's hard for me to imagine that Trump would not have won the election, uh, run re-election, had he not handled COVID better. Like it, it just, you know, given everything else, COVID obviously is a fact, you know, was going to screw up. The election was going to become a very difficult to be given the number of votes he got, huh, uh, even in that environment. It's hard to imagine that if he, is, if he had not so disastrously, I think objectively you can say disastrously, 
uh, handled the, the pandemic, that he would have been in a very strong position for re-election against anyone. So how does he think about that? And how do you think about that as a defining thing in, in what and in how we ended up with Joe Biden as president? As president? So you, you make the two points that I make a lot. A, I think that he absolutely would have won re-election um, if he had handled it remotely competently, competently and remotely seriously and, and remotely without you know, total interest for his own sense of grievance and anger that this was happening to him, which I write about in the book. He, right. you know, kept saying this to people, but can you believe this is happening to me? Um, I am struck by how he increased his vote share, which I think is partly just a product of the, the very same changes in mail-in voting that he decries, I think he benefited from. Um, he, he, he lost by his own hand and, you know, his, the bulk of his advisors will acknowledge that. Yeah. And, you know, um, uh, it's, uh, you know, I think that I think those things are great. Does he have any awareness of that? Do you think? No, no, I do not. You do not. I do not. And, and it doesn't mean that it doesn't exist somewhere in there. But no, I do not. Um, so now I want to play the second piece of sound. The thing that has been out there in the public, but it's still, you know, pretty striking is is your your interview with him on the question of of January 6th and, and what he was uh, what he was doing when his people uh, having to be strong. Uh, uh, decided to, to to plow through the the barricades and, and storm the Capitol. So let's play that. But what were you doing when when? You, how did you find out that that there were people storming the, the Capitol? I had heard that afterwards, and actually, on the late side, I was I was having meetings. Mm-hmm. I was also with uh, Mark Meadows and others. Mm-hmm. I was not watching television. I didn't have the television you on. Okay. Uh, I didn't usually have that te- the television on. I'd have it on if there was something. I then later turned it on, and I saw what was happening. I also had uh, confidence that the Capitol, who didn't want these 10,000 people. The Capitol Police, you mean. That okay. they'd be able to control this thing. Mm-hmm. And you don't realize that, you know, they they did lose control. I noticed that he says in there he had confidence. Whenever you would hear confidence from Trump in an interview, would you think, oh, thank you for the give, reinforcing my title? I actually, actually didn't. Yeah. Um, I, 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 it didn't strike me until uh, recently that, that, that that was what he said. But it, but it was striking to me that he was acting as if he thought that the Capitol Police were going to handle this. It was it, The whole thing was striking. But, but that his immediate reaction, we've talked about yeah. this, you know, in the context of the, the documents answer that he gave yeah. me. He just goes to the quick, no, 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 no that's not true. You know, it, it, it's been very well established by the House Select Committee and their public hearing that he was watching television. And this is what we all understood in real time. And, and yet he just can't acknowledge that. Well, so so this gets to a larger question. And it's a question you and I, I will, I'll acknowledge that we we discussed, you know, when we chatted a couple weeks ago. But I, it gets at a very essential thing about this book, about Confidence Man. And, you know, I, I alluded to the notion earlier that this is not a, a book about, there are some news in it. But that's not the strength of the book. It's not why you read this book. It's not because there's just you know more like the, the bombshell details and, and nuggets and all that stuff. It's it's about it's a study of this of a man in full. If you, if you say Donald Trump is a man in full, he, but it, but it's a it's a it's a look at his at how the the making of him and the breaking of America, as Maggie says in the in the subtitle. But there is, I think, a thing around this, and I really need to understand. People really need to understand how you think about how Trump thinks about his relationship to what I will say was an insurrection, what, what is, I think is rightly described as an, auto, an attempted auto coup, maybe an incompetent one, et cetera, et cetera. That, that, like, that you have a view of, of Trump 
as a as an actor. I don't mean a, a thespian, but I mean as an as an agent mm-hmm. of chaos, a, mm-hmm. an agent, a political mm-hmm. a, with that political agency, mm-hmm. which is much subtler, I think, and and more, I would say, probably closer to the truth than a lot of people who now have decided that Trump is a. a is a an ideologue that Trump is a uh, he's a autocrat he's a he's a an aspiring dictator uh, that that your view is more subtle than that doesn't just not does not reject the notion that he acts in autocratic ways or it is he does repressive things or whatever but that if there's a, a different kind of human assessment going on in the way you see him that comes through in every page of Confidence Man so I want you just I want to talk about that because I think it's really sure. important and interesting. So I think that, A, I think you you really understand the book, and I'm very grateful for that. Uh, I think that in, I, there's two portraits of Donald Trump that Donald Trump likes. And one is complete adulation, you know, and, and, and hero worship. And then the other is Trump as competent strongman. And this book is neither one of those. It doesn't mean that he does not have strongman tendencies. It does not mean that he, you know, has a dangerous disregard for civil rights, for norms, it does not mean that he, you know, treats laws as and regulations as something he has to accept, because he does not. Um, but and, and in some ways, this reality of him is more dangerous, because it's not coming from some clear through line. It's someone who will do whatever he has to do in any given moment, um, which can be more destabilizing. And so that's what I'm trying to to show and describe. And that will in some moments mean that, no, it's not 3D chess. And in other moments, it will mean that whatever he's doing is is more destructive. Um, but that is what I'm trying to show. And what he is, is he is a bossist. And that can look the same. You know, I, I remember being on a panel with David Remnick hosting and, and Masha Gessen uh, during the transition, I think it was the end of 2016, and I was saying, Masha was talking, you know, she obviously is a Putin expert, and she was talking right. about strong men. Right. And I was sort of dismissive of the idea that Trump has the, um, you know, coherence or competence to execute the kind of thing she was talking about. And her point was, it doesn't matter. And I think that's right. I think that she has yeah. the, she had absolutely the right take. Um, but I do think understanding where it's coming from and who people are is is important. And I think it gives history a greater understanding. And I hope it gives people a greater understanding of what happened and, and what may happen. Right. It's like, you know, there's a lot of things that people have these very, these views that I've always thought were incoherent. It's like Trump is a fucking idiot, but he's also Hitler. It's like, well, you know right. what? Right. Hitler wasn't an idiot. He had the, Hitler was obviously the, 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 the picture of evil, not an idiot. I mean, it was a, and, and the, the, this Trump is a buffoon, but he's also engineers these incredibly complex conspiracies. It's like, it's it's the thing about this is is to get to your you know is that is I think one of the things that comes through in the book and is this notion of Trump as being he doesn't really understand history it certainly doesn't have a no. view of the future he yeah. lives in the moment and in yep. any moment I, it's actually our earlier conversation and and then reading the book has caused caused me on, the other day publicly to say he's like a mollusk he's like a he's like just like he's either reacting to an opportunity like here's food or here's shelter. Like if if I if I'm under threat, there's something. There is something. There's something to that. Yes. If I'm under threat, if I if I do whatever I have, improvise whatever I have to do to get to, get to safety. And if I see a way to, to 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 enrich myself or improve my position or get more power, I die for that. And that's and, right. 
and that is, I mean, on some level, it's like, it doesn't mean it has no uh, implication for how the, for the morality of it. It's like, it, it's, you can be a, a functional autocrat without actually understanding what the word autocrat means. And I think that's right, what, kind of what, part of the thing here. It is. But what it, what, it, what it also means is that, you know, when you're trying to figure out a way to stay in power, it's not really done particularly effectively, right? And so I think that January 6th, John, to just wrap up what you just said, yeah. there was a massive failure of imagination across Washington because the presumption was he will use the military to help him stay in power. Right. And it was actually the opposite. It was he will use the crowd. And so, um, and lean into the crowd. And, um, you know, no, he will, I, I should note, you know, uh, uh, people around him, you know, often point out that he said that the crowd should go, you know, uh, peacefully and patriotically. And they insist that that's why he wasn't uh, showing intent. Um, but uh, I think it's pretty clear that, um, you know, people have seen the effect his words have on his voters. And so I think that people were looking in the wrong place. All right, we're going to take one more quick break here on Hell and High Water, and we'll be back with Maggie Haberman from The New York Times and author of the brand new book, Racing Up the Best Auto List as We Speak, Confidence Man, The Making of Donald Trump and the Breaking of America. And we're back on Hell and High Water with New York Times reporter Maggie Haberman, also author of a new book, which by now everyone knows the name of because you've heard it on the streets, you've seen it on TV, and you've heard it a lot in this special two-part episode of Hell and High Water. The book is called Confidence Man, The Making of Donald Trump and the Breaking of America. You know, Maggie, I think, you know, when people look ahead to 2024, they got a lot of worries, and some of them revolve around these candidates that Trump uh, helped to become nominees in the Senate and gubernatorial races. I was in Arizona last week, and you know there's a whole slate of Republican election deniers. Everybody who's running for a major office in every statewide office uh, is someone who says that the 2020 election was stolen, that Donald Trump should still be president. They did that for either because they really believed it or because they needed to say it to get Trump's backing or both. And then maybe the the most uh, the most important of those jobs when it comes to 2024 and the certification of the presidential election is going to be the governor's job, uh, along with the secretary of state. And, and the governor's job, you've got Carrie Lake. She's an out front election denier. You've got a secretary of state named Mark Fincham, who would become secretary of state, who's like one of the craziest election deniers out there. But Carrie Lake uh, is a former television uh, personality in Arizona, very popular. There's a lot of energy behind her campaign. And man, she getting that nomination she said a lot of crazy stuff about the election, and she just did an interview not that long ago with our friend Caddy Kay for a new documentary that Caddy has made about the potential comeback of Trump. Let's listen to the Caddy Kay interview. There's a little there's a little clip of it out right now. Carrie Lake talking to Caddy Kay for this BBC documentary uh, about Trump. Let's play that. You talked about the 2020 election, and saying that it's stolen. Do you really believe the 2020 election was stolen? Yes, absolutely. I'm not the only one who believes it. The majority of Americans believe it. Unfortunately, the media refuses to cover it. We had a million ways to cheat, and they used each and every one of them. But there was also here in Arizona a review commissioned by the Republican Party that found that Joe Biden won the state. We know that hundreds of thousands of phony ballots were dropped into these drop boxes and they were counted. 
the media still won't believe it because they're on a mission to discredit that. So, you know, Maggie, that's why people, I said the people are worried about what's going to happen in 2024. And, you know, it's when they hear uh, people like Carrie Lake saying things like that. And, and the particular focus of their worry is, you know, that these people will be in office, these election deniers will be in office, and that will be uh, the situation if Trump runs again, like whether he's under yep. indictment or whether he's not under indictment. Mm -hmm. Is it your sense that he is utterly unchastened by all of, I mean, in some ways, this is like the most obvious question in the world, but like, you know him better than most do in terms of how he thinks about things. Is there any way in which you think that he... It feels that the experience of what has happened from January 6th to today would, would, is, is there any moment where you think like now there's a, some level of restraint where he'd be like, well, I don't want to go, th I, I wouldn't just do that all over again. Or, or is it really, he's like, so far I'm unpunished for this, which means I would do it again. I would just try no. to do it better next time. I mean, where do you no. think? I mean, I you know I mean? do, like, do do which you mean try to stay in power if he's attempt to out? attempt I, to attempt to use whatever you just said he used the crowd and not the military to try to stay in power that his attitude is i mean again what people fear is that in 2024 he will try to have another uh, he will try to install himself in power this time rather than preserve power through anti-democratic means and and force people to do things like the 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 election denying secretary of state and governor in certain states where he's like if i can get through if i can get power that way I'm going to do whatever, it, I'll do whatever I, it takes. He's not chastened. It's yeah. just that he'll, you know, again, because he's deciding whatever he's going to do in the moment, he'll see what works for him or doesn't work for him, including on running. Now, I assume he is going to run, but I don't know. It's funny when you were just talking about the staying in power thing, what immediately flashed into my head was Rudy Giuliani trying to stay in office at the end of 2001 after the terrorist attacks. And right. then Mike Bloomberg changing you know, getting getting a suspension of the term limit laws in New York City to stay in office. So I, I raise that only to make the point that actually when when things happen on a on a on a lower and less significant level and they're tolerated, that is part of how we get here too. Things don't happen overnight. Um and I think Donald Trump will always push the limits of transgressive behavior, but he will decide for himself whether that's worth it in a given moment or not. So I have one last topic to raise with Maggie, and then and then I'll let you go. Uh, you've been super kind and generous to give us this much time, but I know you have other things to do. And like two hours is two two plus hours is more than enough of your precious time. And we have to start editing soon, or we'll never get this podcast posted. Um, but I do want to talk to you about one last topic because it's such a big thing going on in the political world right now, which is this Herschel Walker scandal uh, in the Georgia Senate race. And you know, look, it's it's the case that. Um, it's it, it, depending, you know, it's a 50-50 Senate. Every every Senate race counts. How this ends up uh, working out in Georgia could determine control of the U.S. Senate. Uh, Herschel Walker, football legend, uh, is really a political creation of Donald Trump. Donald Trump sort of pushed him into politics, uh, advocated on his behalf, endorsed him, backed him. Uh, he would not be running for uh, Senate in Georgia or in any state, I believe, if it weren't for Donald Trump's backing. Um, and there was a lot of there were some some questions about Herschel Walker's background, uh, particularly as it relates to his what what to an ex wife. Uh, even before we got to the scandal that broke out last week, there were a lot of questions. And you did an interview with Trump in which you started to talk to him about uh, the kinds of questions that might be raised about uh, Herschel Walker in this campaign, and and you got Trump's perspective on what he thought. 
And it's interesting to hear it now in light of what we learned last week. So let's listen to first, let's listen to Donald Trump right here on Herschel Walker. Georgia, think about Georgia. In Georgia, Herschel, they did the ballad to Herschel Walker. They, they did ballads. Do you know how great a football player is? Do you know that he was in University of Georgia? He was the best football player in the nation by far. He's the best football player in the history of Georgia. Uh, and for the most part in the history of the guy, you know, he, as a running back, he's a top three yeah. or four running back. But he has a complicated personal history, which he, is what they're worried does, about. But do you know that it's a personal history that 10 years ago maybe would have been a problem? 20 years ago would have been mm-hmm. a bigger problem? Mm-hmm. I don't think it's a problem today. Why is that? Why do you think because that that's changing? the world is changing. Trump says the world is changing, you know, and, you know, who can doubt that? It spins around on its axis every day. The world's changing. Uh, But what's really changed much more dramatically is Herschel Walker's circumstances because last Monday, a week ago or so, the Daily Beast wrote this story, the first of a series of stories, but the main one basically saying that that although Herschel Walker is is staunchly, avidly, and publicly pro-life, he had in fact, according to a woman, not his wife, um, and according to the receipts that she provided, he had paid for an abortion uh, for her. And uh, there have subsequently been other accusations about other things he's done in this vein. But when that first story came out, there was like, it kind of rocked the political world and people wondered, well, what's going to happen to Herschel Walker? And uh, what happened immediately was his son, Christian, who is uh, a big figure in conservative political TikTok land and social media. Very, very, a big Trump fan, big DeSantis fan. This guy is not a liberal Christian, Christian Walker. He came out with a video the next day after Herschel Walker denied everything about the Daily Beast report. He came out in a state of righteous fury and denounced his father as a liar on TikTok. And that's really what broke the story open. So let's listen to Christian Walker, if anybody hasn't heard this already. I stayed silent as the atrocities committed against my mom were downplayed. I stayed silent when it came out that my father, Herschel Walker, had all these random kids across the country, none of whom he raised. And you know my favorite issue to talk about is father absence. Surprise, because it affected me. That's why I talk about it all the time, because it affected me. Family values people, he has four kids, four different women, wasn't in the house raising one of them. He was out having sex with other women. Do you care about family values? I have a silent lie after lie after lie. The abortion card drops yesterday. It's literally his handwriting in the car. They say they have receipts, whatever. He gets on Twitter. He lies about it. Okay, I'm done. Done. We were told at the beginning of this, he was going to get ahead of his past, hold himself accountable, all of these different things, and that would have been fine. Go ahead. He didn't do any of that. Everything's been a lie. Everything's been downplayed. Everything's been cutting corners. The whole thing. So now we come to the third beat of the story. There's Christian Walker saying that, uh, that stuff. And- you know, that the story now metastasizes. There's more Daily Beast reporting. There's more uh, sound and fury signifying either something or nothing. We're not sure yet, but it, man, it really looked like uh, the Walker campaign was under siege last week. And finally, they decided that he had to go out and meet the press, so to speak, and say something to answer these questions directly, not just be on uh, right-wing television, but go actually and talk to real reporters and and answer at least some questions about this uh, face-to-face. And so he did. He did a press conference towards the end of the week. Uh, I think most people don't think it went particularly well, but you can see the playbook that he's deploying even in this interview. And the thing I want to get to, which is the ways in which this playbook come in a lot of ways directly from Donald Trump and particularly from the playbook that he employed in the Access Hollywood scandals. So let's play that. Here's Herschel Walker 
in this press conference late last week in Georgia. You said that if this did happen, there's nothing to be ashamed of. How do you Wait, I never that? said I never said that this morning on, on you. No, what show. I said, I was talking about something totally different than if this did happen. I said when I with my ex-wife in my past, nothing to do with what this woman said. So I said this this here, the abortion thing is false. It's a lie. And that's what I said. I said anything happened with my ex-wife or what Christian was talking about, I don't know. But as I said, if anything happened, there's nothing to be ashamed of. My ex-wife and I have been the best of friends with her husband and my wife. So that's the thing that I've said. And I said nothing about if it did happen because I said that's a lie. All right. So there's my question. You know, uh, Maggie, I ask you, you know, Trump said to you, the world has changed. And, and what I would say, if you watch the way Herschel Walker has been dealing with these accusations, which have a lot of, uh, not they're not the same, obviously, but they have a lot of resident, the kind of consonance with, with things that Trump has been accused of and was in 2016, that the way the world has changed is that Donald Trump proved to the world that you could just bluster your way through it and just be defiant and call everything a lie and you, it would work. And Herschel Walker seems to be, his approach to this seems to be premised on the same thing. Do you see that parallel and that, that continuity that I see? Oh, yeah. I, I, I think there's no question. And I think there's no question that Walker is trying to test whether the Trump playbook works for everyone. I guess my my thing, I mean, Trump and Trump clearly wants it to, right, based on what he said. Yes. Um, and that was I was really surprised. There, there's, you know, and I write about this. There, there are these unexpected moments of candor when you're interviewing him, too. And that was one of them. But I'm not sure the world has changed that much. It has certainly changed enough that um, you know, and, and he sort of captured this. It isn't just him changing it. It's the post tea party era that changes it. He even referred to it with 10 years ago, 20 years ago. Um, not everybody is Donald Trump and he's so to all of the things we've discussed previously, he's so affixed in the fabric of pop culture in this country. And people feel like they know him in a different way. And that does matter. The specifics of what Walker is, accused of also matter. And so, um, you know, unlike with Trump too, the sheer volume of scandal around Trump meant that no one thing sort of stuck out to people. I'm, I, this is going to be a real test of whether the world has changed as, as much as Trump wants it to have. I mean, it's just fascinating that, uh, that of course, that he, this guy would not be the nominee. Herschel Walker would not be running for governor or running for senator uh, in Georgia if it weren't for Donald Trump. He's a pure, as a political matter, he's a pure creation of Donald Trump. And so it's it's actually kind of almost, there's a kind of almost poetic kind of, uh, a real-time test that also has kind of a poetic kind of resonance to the whole thing. Um, this is my lightning round for you. One, <laughs> Trump's going to run for, Trump's going to run again in 2024, yes or no? Probably. Trump's going to that getting indicted would uh, will will improve the likelihood of increase the likelihood of him running or decrease the likelihood of him running. Increase. Getting indicted will increase the likelihood of him being the nominee or decrease the likelihood of him being the nominee. Not relevant. Uh, the most surprising thing, having covered Trump as much as you have. All the stories you've written, all the news you've broken, all the research you've done, all the reporting you've done, everything you've ever done, for the book, the the, the biggest surprise that you were like, huh, I had no idea. Uh, I wouldn't say it was I had no idea, but the, the reporting that stood out to me the most was that he had told his biracial girlfriend in the late 1990s that she got her brains from her dad, the white side. Um, that was surprising to me. Oh, man. <laughs> 
would I, I, that also could be most the most surprising and the most appalling piece of new reporting in the book. That's a uh, that's a uh, uh, I mean, but but not not uh, not inconsistent. And what's the one thing that so far in all the people who've interviewed you for the book, uh, that all the publicity you've done thus far, and this very long interview you've done with me, what's the one thing like? What's what's the the thing that people have not highlighted in the book. I know you have something like this because every author does. You're like, I can't believe you haven't asked about this. This is the thing that I thought would get, you know, people would focus on. Everyone's overlooked it so far. No. So there's, there's one thing actually that everyone has overlooked. I was thinking about this last night uh, and I talked about this uh, at an event. Um, he, he started talking about how he had wanted Mario Cuomo to whom he had given a lot of contributions, former governor of New York, then at Wilkie Farr, which was Trump's law, one of Trump's law firms. Um, he wanted Mario when Andrew Cuomo was HUD secretary and Trump was having problems with some program. He wanted Mario to call Andrew and like connect them. And Mario wouldn't do it um, because it's not proper. And Trump was furious that he wouldn't wouldn't do this and couldn't be bothered to do it. And I found out from somebody else that Trump actually tried to get Mario fired um, through the person running the firm. It's just so such a classic Trump move and it involves the Cuomos and I'm just, and he was just sort of talking openly about it and didn't seem at all aware of how it sounded. Um, I'm a little surprised no one's picked up on that. It's the most Maggie Haberman thing you could ever say, which is to say, what's the thing that's been overlooked in the book and have it be a story? And have, <laughs> and have it be a story about, about, about Donald Trump and Mario Cuomo, like a very yeah. New York, very particular thing. Um, <laughs> uh, Maggie, I, I, I can't tell you, like, I mean, you know, it's, it's, no, it's no denigration to anybody else who's been on the podcast or any other book that's been written about Trump to say that I uh, was looking forward to this book. Uh, as much or more than anything else that I've read in the last couple of years. That. Um, and uh, it's incredibly satisfying. It's incredibly good. Confidence Man, the making of Donald Trump and the breaking of America. Uh, not like I have to tell you to buy it because you're already bought it if you care about politics in our country. But I was also really looking forward to this conversation and it was really delightful. I, you know, I, 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 we haven't talked enough in the last few years and we should, we should do this more because uh, it was really, this was really great. fun. I'm so, I'm so thrilled to have been here, John. Thank you. Hell and I Water is a podcast from The Recount. Thanks again to Maggie Haberman. And go pick up her new book. You're probably going to do that anyway. The book is Confidence Man, The Making of Donald Trump and the Breaking of America. If you like this two-part episode with Maggie, please subscribe to Hell and High Water. There's more where that came from. And share us, rate us, and review us on whatever app you happen to use to bask in the splendor of the podcast universe. I'm your host and the executive editor of The Recount. John Heilman, Grace Weinstein, co-creator of Hell and High Water. Matthew Kaplowitz, our video editor. Megan Burney and Amr Sultan produced and engineered this episode. Zoya Saroy is our researcher and the one and only, the truth, the lights, the facts, the fiction, everything is the man and the legend. His name is Marshall Isaac. He's the executive producer. 